welcome to week one of Red Letter Living on Dwelling Place Church's Bible Study Podcast. Enjoy. Our topic is Red Letter Living. So why Red Letter Living? And that is that they are the words of Jesus Christ and that they are sure, they are powerful, that Jesus spoke the truth and he also spoke it with love. And uh, his words were life transforming. And that that's something that when we plant our church, Dwelling Place Church, we want it to be a place where people's lives are changed. And But what, what better way to experience that but than by studying the words of Jesus himself. So, and just as a preface to starting out, um, uh, we're open to questions, we're open to comments, we by no means know everything there is to know about scripture, uh, but we are, I think I'd liken it to is we, we don't own a bread factory which could produce bread for everyone and have all the bread in the world, but we've been given a, a piece of bread and we're willing to share what we have. And so uh, we're definitely open to uh, constructive criticism, comments, and uh, you know we're, we're here to study in this together, just yeah. to, to feed off one another's discussion. As the Bible says, iron sharpening iron. We want, we want our, our swords to be bright, we want our intentions to be true, and uh, we want to just learn together. So uh, starting out, uh, we're going to be going through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, just bit by piece, verse by verse. And uh, just to give some, some factual information and an overview of the Gospels, uh, the word gospel uh, means good news, and uh, the evangelist was means one who brings good tidings, one who brings good news, is where that word comes from. And the key of the gospels is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Uh, Twelve times um, in the book of Matthew, it is mentioned that it may be fulfilled. Matthew's uh, sole thing he was trying to show was that the Old Testament is being fulfilled by Jesus, who is the King who has come. So the Gospels comprise the foundation of the Christian faith of what we believe through fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy through the life and through the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one to come. Uh, so we have the first three Gospels. you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called synoptic Gospels. A synopsis is a summary, so it's a summary of Christ's life and his ministry. Um, but the book, the fourth book, John, uh, tells of Christ's ministry primarily in Judea and Jerusalem and is focused mainly on that last week before the cross. And so it's a little bit different than the other synoptic Gospels. Um, the Gospels actually comprise about half of the New Testament, about 48% are the Gospels, and uh, then the rest of it are the letters and Revelation and all that that goes on. And, and the, the Gospels are not biographies, uh, but they're accounts of Jesus' life from four different perspectives. Uh, so, the, you know, the four uh, authors didn't just sit down and say, hey, you know, this story fits here and that story fits there. We're going to try to make this all work together. But they happened at different times through different people. And four different perspectives were inspired by the Holy Spirit leading and guiding them to write the accounts. And in a court of law, um, if you have substantial agreement with circumstantial variation, that will always stand in court. What that means is when there's... Um, a majority of agreement between accounts, even though they may differ because there's perhaps a different perspective, say if one's on the side of the road watching a car crash while the other one is the passenger seat of the car crash, there's two very different perspectives of the same event. Different people might be uh, uh, mentioned in it, certain facts may be highlighted. So we see that kind of variation in scripture, but we see many of the stories blend in together and so we have that uh, substantial agreement. 
so looking at just the four books, there's uh, some key elements of them. Um, first is perspective. Matthew's book, his perspective and his focus is that Christ is the king. Christ is royalty. He kept trying to push that point that Christ is the coming king. And he was appealing to the Jewish mind. And so in appealing to the Jewish mind, he used a lot of Old Testament scripture references because he wanted to show the Jews, hey, this is what was written and this is it being fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And so his emphasis was mainly on Christ's sermons and that he had a priority on Jesus being the messianic king, the one who fulfilled scripture through his coming. When we look at the book of Mark, Mark, his whole focus was on Christ being the faithful servant. So he takes not just the whole king part of the Messiah, but he takes the look of Christ being a servant and he looks at humility. And so he's appealing actually to the Roman mind at the time. And he mainly highlights, if you read the book of Mark, it's just miracle after miracle after miracle. He's highlighting the miraculous of Christ's ministry. And he wants to really show the Roman mind that Jesus is a faithful servant and not a dangerous uh, revolutionary that's mm -hmm. coming in to change things. And so he wanted to paint that kind of perspective in that picture. And then we move on to the book of Luke. We see Christ as the perfect man. He focuses on the humanity of Jesus. And he's appealing to the Greek mind. And of course, we know the Greeks were very humanistic. They had the philosophers. They, they were trying to figure out what life is. And so he's appealing to that Greek mind. And he highlights Christ's parables and the stories that were hard to understand and difficult to understand. And without a spiritual guide and revelation to them, how could one understand them? And so he wanted to have the priority that there's no violation of truth or humanity in Christ, that he was the perfect man. And then when we get to the book of John, John wants to prove and show that the deity of Christ, he wants to show that Jesus is the son of God. He wants to appeal to a universal mind, every person, everywhere, universally, Jesus is the son of the one true God. And he focuses mostly on Christ's doctrine, and that he is the divine son for the entire world. And so we see those three different priorities and perspectives. Something very interesting between the Gospels as well is that uh, the actual literal red letters, the quotations of Jesus, we're actually going to be starting with Matthew, which has the highest percentage of Christ's quotes in it, of the little quotation of Christ. Now, the book of Luke actually has the most verses that are Christ speaking, making up about 50% of the book of Luke. But in terms of the size of the book, Matthew is 60% Jesus's sayings, the red letters. Um, and then there's about 42% in Mark and about 50% in John again. So it's really interesting. I just, I'm excited that we're able to start with, you know, with red letter living with the book that actually has the most red letter content in it. So it's really cool. Um, so um, looking at just the book of Matthew, now that we kind of gave an overview of the four different Gospels, focusing just on the book that we're going to start with, the book of Matthew, a few highlights about it is that he's wanting to prove the royalty of Christ, so it's about the king and his kingdom. And so he uses very unique language that is just to this book. Um, he wants to present Christ as the king, so the word kingdom appears 56 times. Uh, he says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. Uh, that word is used 32 times, and that is in no other book of the New Testament. None of the Gospels. It is the kingdom of heaven. That exact phrase is only in the book of Matthew. He uses the kingdom of God, which appears four times. 
And then he uses a reference that's very peculiar. He calls Jesus the son of David. He uses that nine times. But as we go back, he's trying to prove Christ's royalty. The son of David, David was the king of Israel. And so in order to link it back to the Jewish people to say, hey, God spoke to David and said that your throne is going to be established forever. This is the son of David. This is the king who was supposed to come and his throne will be established forever and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. So he makes that um, point there. Uh, he only And Matthew is the only one who also references uh, a throne of glory, a holy city, and the city of the great king. Um, so... Matthew also cites actually more Old Testament scriptures than any of the other three Gospels. And he really wants to hammer in that Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't come to take it away. He didn't come to abolish the law of the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. Um, church tradition, church tradition, get that out right, <laughs> um, has Matthew being um, none other than the tax collector. He was also called Levi, um, one of Jesus' disciples that Jesus had called. And... Uh, that's just such a fascinating piece of information in itself because here you have one guy one day who's, uh, to take it in modern terms, he's say he's working for the IRS and, uh, you know, just a few days later he encounters Jesus and he writes one of the gospels that is, you know, forever established in the heavens. So it's pretty amazing to see what God can do in a life. Yeah. Um, so Matthew is, uh, the structure of Matthew is built around five uh, major discourses of, of Jesus' teaching. Um, and we can tell when there's a, an end of a discourse, when we see the line, and when Jesus had ended these sayings. And so it focuses on the Sermon on the Mount as the first one, uh, Christ's mission and martyrdom, the parables of the kingdom, teachings on the church, and then the end time teaching uh, toward the end of the book. And then uh, the beginning of the book, the first few chapters, we, we see an introduction and then flowing into that. So, we're going to start and go right ahead into it. We're going to go, if you have your Bibles with you, if not, um, you can just follow along. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. And uh, we get to start with something very exciting, very unique. We get to start with a genealogy. We get to um, read name after name that are hard to pronounce. And uh, I won't make any of you read it. I'll read it because uh, even the most um, confident speaker... Um, can have a hard time with this. <laughs> and uh, I'll say that I'm not going to probably be able to say it exactly the way the words are supposed to be pronounced, but I'll do my best. Um, so I'm going to read just through all those hard names to verse 18. And I'm going to take a break there and then we're going to talk about it. And then we're going to go on through verse 18. So, and, uh, and I'm going to be reading out the King James version. Um, and the King James version is, is a little bit hard to understand sometimes. Um, it is one of the truest literal translations of the Bible, which is, is why people love it, why people still use it. But we also need to remember the context in which the English language was at the time it was written. Um, English, The English language is a live language. Words change meaning over time. So some words in the uh, King James Bible have a little bit different meaning today than it was when they were written. So we kind of had to look at that. But if we come across any sections that are kind of strangely worded. We're going to use some different translations to kind of get, get through them and get some good understanding. Uh, so just want to throw that out there. All right, so beginning in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, it says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares and Zara of Thamar, and Phares begot Ezram, and Ezram begot Aram. 
And Aram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Naasson, and Naasson begot Salmon. And Salmon begot Boaz of Rechab, and Boaz begot Obed, or I guess another term says Boaz, uh, Obed of Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king, he's a little bit easier, and David the king begot Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. And Solomon begot Reboam, and Reboam begot Abiah, and Abiah begot Asa. And Asa begot Josaphat, and Josaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Ozias, and Ozias begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Achaz, and Achaz begot Ezekias, and Ezekias begot Manasses, and Manasses begot Amon, and Amon begot Josias, and Josiah, Josias begot Jeconias and his brethren, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah, uh, begot Salathiel, and Salathiel begot Zorobabel, and Zorobabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. And Azor begot Sadok, and Sadok begot Akim, and Akim begot Eliud, and Eliud begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. All right. Thank you all for hanging with me there. We got through it. I think there's, I think there's about 80 names there, if I'm not mistaken. So, all right. So going through this, Matthew starts with a genealogy. So, looking at what Matthew is trying to do as the author, uh, a king needs a genealogy. They were very strict at keeping the begots and the begats because they wanted to see a, a kingly lineage and to keep track of it. And so, a king needs a genealogy. So, he's further trying to emphasize the fact that Christ was a king. And so, even though he used the lineage of Joseph, his surrogate father, he wanted to show Christ as a king and deserving of a genealogy. And uh, now if we look at Luke chapter 3, which comes a little bit... Oh, thank you, Miss Marianne. <laughs> um, when you go back to Luke chapter 3, we see what appears to be a discrepancy. Because all the names are different, it's another genealogy, but it's, it's different than the names that are in Matthew chapter 1. So what's going on here? Um, but when you look at Luke, Luke is trying to prove the humanity of Jesus. And so he actually uses Mary's genealogy. Um, to prove it's just the humanity of Christ. So he uses Mary's. Matthew's trying to kind of go more from a legal standpoint, so he uses Joseph's genealogy here. So we got both both genealogies right there. So um, so we'll get to, to that one a little bit a while longer. But um, some interesting symbolism in numbers in this genealogy. Very interesting. So why the number 14 generations? Why is that significant? If you look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, there was mentioned a 70 weeks which equals a 490-year period. And in Daniel, it says that, that that time span is going to pass until the coming of the Messiah. And the way they calculated the generation was it was around 35 years. So if you times 35 years times 14 generations, you get 490. You get 70 weeks. So when in him being able to say that there was 14 generations here, 14 generations there, and then 14 generations from Babylon, which is in Daniel's time, until Christ, we have 490 years. So what does this mean? It means the fulfillment of the scripture. 
that what God spoke in Daniel chapter 9 was an exact timeline until the actual birth of Christ. And some interesting things about just the number 14 in itself, you'll see that the number 14 means salvation or deliverance. Um, and this is this blew me away. This blew me away. So the day of Passover, the day of Passover happened in the first Hebrew month. It was called uh, Nisan or Nisan. That's N-I-S-A-N, almost like the car, just with only one S. Um, but the 14th day of that month is Passover. So Passover was when the children of Israel were under Egyptian bondage and the, the just a few days before they were released from Egypt from Pharaoh, we have Passover in which the angel of death had passed through. They had taken the first spotless lamb, killed it, shed its blood over the doorposts and the angel of death had passed over. So we see some rich symbolism of Jesus's blood being applied to our lives and death, sin, judgment passing over. So it is awesome that we have 14 generations that is a fulfillment of scripture in Daniel. And then we also see the symbolism of 14, meaning Passover, meaning Jesus, and the price of um, sin being paid. So it's really cool. And then you also, you have 14 generations. You have three of them, three 14 generation increments. And three is the number of divine completeness. Com divine completeness. And so what we have is when we put three 14s, we have the divine completeness of salvation and deliverance in the three separate 14 generation brackets. So it's, it's just wonderful just to see that, that amazing symbolism in, in a genealogy of all places. Um, some other kind of interesting things about this genealogy as well is that it mentions women. And women weren't, tend, they weren't really emphasized or prioritized. It was usually the male bloodline where things followed. But I think they were mentioned because they had great purpose. Um, Rahab is mentioned. Rahab was a Canaanite. She was not a Jew. And so we see even in the lineage of Jesus, God grafting in the Gentiles, almost as a, an Easter egg, if you will, of, of what was to come of the Gentiles being grafted in. We also see Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She was another Gentile, and she was the one who married Boaz. And we have that beautiful story, uh, that beautiful love story of her and Boaz coming together. And then um, they got begot Obed, who was the grandfather of King David. And so we see a beautiful thing there. Um, other two that are mentioned are, so we have like kind of like two good examples of biblical women, and then we have two not so good ones. We have Tamar and Bathsheba, um, which are also mentioned in there. But it's cool to see that even with the women who obeyed God and the women who may not have obeyed God or fell into sin, we see that God worked it all out together for good, that God used all these different stories, two positive examples, two negative examples, and that they're even mentioned in there was very significant. Um, so, and some other things that are just kind of some interesting parts about some of the names is, um, Asa was in the lineage and Asa is also, uh, the Greek form of that is Asaph. And if you remember reading some of the Psalms, you'll see a song of Asaph and you'll see a bunch of Psalms in there. And so when Jesus, when he was talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says that he shared with them concerning the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, all things concerning himself. And so you almost you have a writer of the Psalms being in the lineage that led up to Jesus. So it's kind of like a double kind of fulfillment thing going on there. And, uh, and Amos was also... Uh, I think Ammon, I think, was also the Greek form of that was Amos, and he was a prophet. So you have the Psalms and the prophets in the lineage. So kind of just a cool little thing there. Um, so, oh, last thing about the genealogy. This this is pretty wild. Um, there is actually, actually, I'm going to have you help me um, because I need to, these pictures are kind of out of alignment. Um, but there there's a, a, 
a genealogy code, they call it. And basically what it is, is every name in scripture has another meaning to it. It means something. Um, the name Adam means man, things of that nature. So what someone did is they took all the definitions of all the names in this genealogy and they put them one after the another and it actually basically tells a salvation story. It's very unique. I'm going to read it to you. And um, Ashton's going to help me because all my pictures were in alignment to where the names were down in the right order, but now they're out of order. So she's going to kind of look at the, the last one there and try to help me out. Let's see. Did they send an order to this? We'll check one. Oh, just bear with us on that. We might have had another. This one might be easier. Let's see. What's that one there? It should be like eight pictures or so. Oh, yeah. This is it. Okay, cool. Is it in line? It should be. Uh, wait. No, that's Abram. Nope, they're not in line. Okay, so we're just doing the best we can. All right. Uh, so here we go. Um, so starting with Adam, we have Adam, Seth, Enoch, Canaan, Mahalalel, and it goes on. So I'm just going to read the definitions. It says that man is appointed a mortal man of sorrow. The glory of God shall come down, instructing that his death shall bring those in despair, comfort, and rest. The fame of Babylon's fortress and sorrow extend like a plant beyond the place of division. A friend branches out enraged with fury. Then, now we're at Abraham. I think, let's see, wait. Terah, Abraham. Um, a glorious father, the father of a multitude, laughs as he outwits his enemy. A mighty prince sees God. Then joins himself to an assembly, a glorious people whom he rescued, strangers in a strange land, captives delivered by God. Um, and I think... Vanessa, I think this is. I think I'm still in the right order. Um, one who praises the Lord breaks open a way into an area surrounded by a wall of great height. O oh, my people, who belong to the prince, a prophet clothed with strength, who serves the Lord, is here. One well loved, peaceful, and who sets the people free. My father is the Lord, the healer of him whom the Lord judged and whom the Lord raised up. The Lord took hold of me, and the Lord is strong. Mighty is the Lord. My strength is in the Lord. The Lord is perfect. I took hold of the strength of the Lord. It made me forget my misery. Mm. Truly, I am the master builder, whom the Lord healed, whom the Lord raised up, whom the Lord appointed, upheld, and will uphold. My Father is glorious. My God will raise up a helper. The just one will the Lord raise up. My God is my praise. God will help. May the gift of Jacob increase in greatness, for God is with us. I thought that was pretty cool. I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, it could have just been a bunch of jumbled names that didn't make sense. But we see, you know, you see those themes in there. So, really cool. Um, so, moving on now to verse 18. Oh, we got it right here. All right. I'm just going to read 18 through 25, and then we'll, um, we'll go back and talk about it. So, now we go on to the nativity. We go on to the birth of Christ. And it starts in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child, excuse me, of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily or privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So, um, pretty pretty cool nativity story. Starting in verse 18, um, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with a child of the Holy Ghost. Um, so in the Jewish custom, when uh, a man and wife were betrothed, there was usually uh, an exchanging of gifts, um, perhaps um, like the man would give uh, some jewels or some kind of currency to the father of the bride. And then there would be a course of time, usually around a year, in which the bridegroom would prepare a place for his bride. Um, he would create their house, he would get things together, and then, as we see later on in some of Jesus' stories, he talks about the bridegroom coming and the celebration of the bridegroom coming to get the bride and to bring her to his home. And so that was that was kind of the process of things happening. So with Mary and Joseph, we kind of see them in that place where they're kind of engaged, pretty much, where Joseph is probably preparing a place for them. And... Uh, he's he's building that place and, and preparing it for them, but he he wants he somehow discovers that she's pregnant either from her belly getting bigger or from people gossiping. We, the Bible isn't very clear on how he he finds out, but one day he discovers that she is pregnant, and the Bible says he wants to put her away privately. Now, according to Deuteronomy in the law, chapter twenty two and twenty one, um, if a man made a virgin pregnant. Um, they either had to marry and be married for life. He couldn't write her a certificate of divorce. They were they were just that was it. They to the end of the line. They had to be together, or um, if she wasn't a virgin, then um, she would be killed and stoned. Um, but also in Moses' law made provision for the certificate of divorce. So it looks like Joseph was just considering. He's like, all right, I don't know how this happened, and you know he given unsupernatural circumstances, we all know that it would be, you know, how his, in his mind, he was thinking, all right, she slept with someone else. I'm going to divorce her. And so, but he wanted to do it privately. He wanted to just give her a certificate of divorce. He didn't want her to be stoned. He didn't want anything like that. He just wanted to do it quietly and be done with it. Uh, Cause he said that Joseph was a righteous man. And I think a lot of times we, we put a lot of emphasis on Mary, but there's a lot of information about Joseph in this passage of scripture which is very commendable. Um, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, let's see where I was at. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, in verse 19, because when we see Joseph, he not only accepts Mary after hearing the word of the Lord, but he even raises Jesus. He obeys the word of the Lord fully. He doesn't just give God, uh, you know, a half obedience or 98% obedience, but he goes all the way to receive Mary, believed that she was endowed with the Son of God, um, carries her to Bethlehem, takes care of her, marries her afterwards, and um, he didn't, he, he respected the Word of God so much. Um, I'm just going to be very honest with you all. If Joseph had relations or had known Mary in the biblical sense before Jesus was born, that wouldn't have really affected the promise of God being fulfilled. But he respected God so much that he didn't want to do anything that could hinder God's plan from coming forth or, or bring any reproach to that. And so we see a very righteous man of God who, who was obedient to what God told him to do. Very, very interesting. Um, 
So verse 20, let me see. I got a little bit lost there. Okay, so yeah, so Joseph was a, a just man, and um, while he thought on these things, the Lord appeared to him into a, in a dream and spoke to him. So this is interesting, is that when Joseph had a dream, he got direction, the Lord spoke to him. And we see a parallel there, too, because Joseph in the Old Testament, if you remember Joseph, who was the son of um, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was Jacob's son, Joseph, he was a dreamer, and God spoke to him in dreams, and God, and he saw dreams fulfilled through um, God speaking to him through that way. And so we see that kind of almost a little bit of a parallel in the New Testament that here's, again, another man named Joseph. And from there, uh, sorry, I got lost my train of thought. Man, I'm struggling, blessed. So, but he, so you see the parallel that Joseph had dreams as well, and God spoke to him in that. And so even when we don't understand the situation fully, God is doing something that we haven't seen before. God is still faithful to give us direction in that. So even Joseph, I mean, he didn't know what to do in that situation, and he just tried to do the best thing that he knew how. But then when God spoke to him, he just obeyed God, he believed it, and he kept on going with it. So then in verse 23, um, actually, sorry, in verse 22, it says that it might be fulfilled which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So that is in reference to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which again, reading the book of Matthew, he's trying to establish um, Christ being king, so he's, he's focusing on fulfillment. There's more scripture being fulfilled. An interesting part of this, too, as well, is that all the writers of the Gospels in this time period, they did not have chapter and verse. Scrolls were written on long pieces of paper. They had pieces of wood, kind of like dowels, on either end of it. And some of them were, I think, between 20 and 30 feet, I think, was the longest they let them be. So I think the book of Luke was so long... Or uh, actually, it, was, it had just enough that they like actually had two scrolls for it. It was, it was such a big book. Um, so that's how they kind of, they wrote on things. That's how they read things. And so for, for them to even find scripture, they'd have to kind of unroll one piece and roll up the next or kind of roll out a 20 or 30 feet piece of parchment. So um, it was quite a, a feat to find it. There was no Google search. Um, there was no Bing. There was no uh, just quick type in or word search. Uh, you really had to look for what you were trying to find. And so just an interesting little tidbit of information of that time in the culture. Um, let's see. Okay, and I talked about that. Cool. So, yeah, so just so we see scripture being fulfilled. We see uh, Joseph being a righteous man and wanting to obey God fully and uh, to just lead in God's full direction. And I actually went a little bit over than I thought today. So uh, we're going to end there with the, the Bible discussion for tonight, um, with chapter one. And we're going to pick up next week in chapter two uh, with the Magi's visit and the flight to Egypt and everything going on with that.